just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hopefully your day is going well. It's Thursday. Got plenty to talk about today, and we'll get to it very shortly. I also have an email to read, and we'll get to that very shortly. But I wanted to give you a bit of a heads up. On September 18th, which is this coming Sunday, my wife and I are going to be heading down to Savannah, to our new place in Savannah. Fact is, I'm going to do a lot of traveling in these winter months, too. There's a lot of places I want to go and get the fuck out of the cold weather and the snow. Now, when I've gone on trips before, especially going to Savannah, what I've had to do is pre-record some podcasts, do them well in advance. And I know a lot of people weren't really feeling that because what this podcast is, is more about Well, not really real time, but as close as you can get to it with a podcast. That's the weird thing about the Rational Boomer podcast. Most podcasts produce all these shows. And then they have a library of shows that people can go back to and listen. To be perfectly honest, if you go back farther than a week on these podcasts, they're absolutely worthless to you because they're outdated. And that's okay. So by doing these four or five podcasts ahead of time, it covered the slots, but the listeners weren't exactly happy about it because it wasn't what they'd expected. And to be perfectly honest, it's a pain in the ass to try to get five podcasts ahead of time before I leave. So I've got some good news for you. That's not going to happen this time. What I did is I bought a small computer, got some other equipment. When I go down to Savannah, I'm going to put that in my suitcase, and then each night, like I do here at home, I'm going to do the podcast, just like it would be any place else. So you shouldn't feel any change in the content or the quality. Everything should be pretty much the same. I'm a problem solver. (laughs) I'm fixing your problem. I'm fixing my problem. And we'll just do business as usual, regardless of what part of the fucking country I'm in. So I am heading to Savannah on the 18th, but nothing will change here on the podcast. I think we're both happy about that. All right, well, let's start things off with an email. And this is kind of a different kind of email. At first, it's normal. And then after that, we get into a subject that's a little different than what we talk about on the Rational Boomer podcast. But I think it's worth thinking about. Hi, Mike. Podcast listener here from Kentucky. I also follow you on TikTok and am a Facebook friend. I appreciate your approach to news of the day and your take on the times we live in. You follow me on the podcast, you follow me on TikTok, and you follow me on Facebook. You are either a great fan or you're a fucking stalker. (laughs) Kidding. Just kidding, dude. A couple of things. I caught your podcast with Brian the Trumplefuck. I get the idea of the content, but I wonder if he has gone back to listen to how he sounded afterward. Maybe. Maybe he would not tell you if he did or didn't. In a strange way, I think the only way these fucks will start to go into hiding is to hear themselves from a different perspective. It didn't sound like there was much editing in the podcast, and he just plain sounded bad. Regardless of the topic, if he reaches back out to you, maybe encourage him to have a listen and see if that makes a difference. Of course, he wouldn't tell you if he did or didn't, but it may give him some personal perspective. It was a great show. It was a great show, though, and I believe you accomplished your goal of having folks not take these jokers too seriously. Well, I'll tell you what. His ego may have caused him to start to listen to it, but when he heard it go bad, uh, I think he probably stopped. He would not admit that he listened or didn't listen. I don't know what he would say. But the fact of the matter is here, we're not going to change their minds. I know that. 
I knew that when Brian came on the show. I know it every time I talk to a Trumplefuck. I'm not going to change their minds. Even if you put them in a corner, like Donald Trump is being put in a corner, even when he is proven wrong, he will never admit he is wrong. And I think the same could be said for the Trump Lafox. So I'm under no delusion that we're going to change minds. Hopefully people will hear the truth and more people of a reasonable mind will hear not only the truth and the facts, but see who the people are that they're siding with. And they will realize that (laughs) that's fucking stupid. That guy's a loser. I'm not going to side with them. Honestly, I don't know what I accomplished with that show. It was just something I wanted to do to prove to myself, to make sure I was right about how I felt about Trump LaFox. And thankfully, I was proven right in my own mind anyway. So if for no other reason, for my own, <laughs> my own uh, curiosity, if you will. All right, this is where it goes off on a different tangent, but a tangent that is legitimate, especially with the kind of audience that I have here on the Rational Boomer podcast. He goes on to say, changing the subject, I'd like to introduce myself to you. My name is Brian, not going to give out his last name yet, and I love I live and work in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I'm 51 years old, married, and have three children, 28, 19, and 18. I'm insurance. I'm an insurance broker by trade. That's where my income comes from. But more than that, I'm a Medicare advisor to folks every day who are new to or already on Medicare. I speak to lots of folks every day who I never do business with, just because they heard about me and need advice on their Medicare coverage. The only thing I do all day is talk Medicare. People trust me because they know I'm not interested in talking about their retirement funds or 401ks or life insurance. It's just Medicare. This is one thing that's always kind of interested me. Medicare is for elderly people, 65 and above, has to do with their health insurance. But it's like taxes. Why is it so fucking complex? And why isn't it just cut and dried for free? So I'm three years away from Medicare, and I'm sure a lot of you folks are either on Medicare or within five years or so of getting Medicare. So this is a legitimate uh, concern to a lot of folks. There's a lot of people I know that are 65 just getting into Medicare and don't really understand the whole fucking process. He goes on to say, I teach a Medicare class I call a workshop all over the state of Kentucky. Obviously, most of my clients come from those workshops, but there are no sales during the workshop. It's a three-hour class where only people who are serious about learning Medicare from A to Z and who need it. I do usually uh, 30 to 40 classes per year all over the state. I've been doing this for almost 20 years here in Kentucky. I'm somewhat known as the Medicare expert, and my company now exists on mainly referrals from existing clients. I'm telling you this because of the take I have on Medicare for all or universal health care or single-payer systems. I have an approach on this that I've never heard any politician talk about, but it's fair and honest, common-sense approach to explaining how health insurance for everyone would work in a way most people would understand. I live in Kentucky, a huge red state, a huge Trump state, and you got Rand Paul and fucking Mitch McConnell, too. Try to explain that to me. Anyway... I've sat at thousands of kitchen tables over the past 20 years in the staunchest conservative households. Inevitably, because of who I am and what I do, I get asked about my thoughts on the subject. When I present my take on it, I always change minds on how it would work for everyone and how it would benefit all involved. Interesting thing is that we wouldn't have to change much at all because of the structure of the system and how it's already in place. I don't work for the government, and I'm not a Medicare representative. However, I believe there is not one person in my state, and maybe others, who knows as much about Medicare and how it works as I do. I do lean left of center, 
but I'm not a Bernie Sanders guy. I'm more of a moderate Democrat, and sometimes fiscally I lean right of center. Just thought I'd throw that in so you'd know where I'm coming from. Anyway, you ask for listeners to email you about what they know. I want to extend my interest in talking with you on the podcast about what I know. I'm not looking for promotion and don't need it. There would be no need for any plugs for my agency. I'd just like to share with you and your listeners an honest approach about health care for all. Sincerely, Brian from Bowling Green, Kentucky. I thought this was interesting, not only because it's a gentleman who knows about Medicare, which is something we will all have to deal with at some point, and for whatever reason is confusing to a lot of people, but the Medicare for all, there's a lot of people telling us why it wouldn't work. But the fact of the matter is Medicare works, so why wouldn't Medicare for all work? It's just about the Trump Lafux and them not wanting to expend any money toward the middle class. So, Brian, I will tell you this. I'd be happy to sit down and talk to you on the podcast anytime you would like. All you have to do is email me where you sent this email, and we can talk about it. I think there would be some interest in it, both for the Medicare and both for um, both for Medicare and for Medicare for All. This is an important subject. I was talking about health care earlier when I had my cataracts taken care of. And uh, it frustrates me and it kind of upsets me um, because as much as I can afford it, in most cases, I'm not, you know, I don't have endless money any more than anybody does. But there are young people and older people that have very limited money and just cannot afford to have certain things done. And I just feel that should not be the case in this country. You know, it's funny. um, I mentioned this in the last podcast, I think. Lindsey Graham came out with his national abortion bill, much to the chagrin of other Republicans. That was an inopportune time to come up with this when overturning Roe v. Wade is fucking these Republicans over for this upcoming midterms. And, of course, the Democrats said, you want to turn this over to the state, but I'll bet you want to do it on a federal level, too. And they, of course, said, oh, no, we're not going to do that. And then Lindsey Graham comes out and says exactly that, the opposite of what they promised. In fact, the opposite of what Lindsey Graham promised. Why would he do that? And we talked about that in the previous podcast. I won't go over that again, but it's causing the Republicans fits. And that's something we're going to talk about in a little bit, um, because it is going to have an impact on the midterms without question. So Brian, a couple things I'd like to suggest. Brian, if you want to be on the show, just send me an email. Let's work out a time and let's do it. Uh, I'm curious uh, to you listeners who just heard that email, uh, how much you'd like an how much you'd be interested in hearing about Medicare and Medicare for all from somebody who knows what the fuck they're talking about. That's what I've always said about the rational boomer. I can come out here and talk like I do every day. I can have on guests and hear from their perspective. But there's a lot of people in the audience that know a lot of shit, know probably more shit than I do. They maybe just don't feel comfortable talking about it. And you know, I don't give a shit. I'll talk about anything, whether I know about it or not. And so I'd like to hear from you folks. If you'd like to hear about this Medicare thing, let me know. (laughs) Now, I will tell you this. If I get a lot of people saying I want to hear it, of course you'll hear it. If I get a lot of people saying I don't want to hear it, well, you're still going to fucking hear it because it's my show and I'm going to do what the fuck I want. (laughs) Just fucking with you, but I'm doing the show. So, Brian, give me a call. Or actually, give me an email. I haven't given anybody my phone number. I'm nervous about giving my phone number out to you freaks. <laughs> I'm kidding again, kind of. Um, anyway, let's talk about the news at hand and um, some of the things that are going on. As I said, there's a lot going on, and there's a lot of things to talk about. This first thing just came out late last night, 
We just heard about it, and I thought it was very interesting. I was going to start the show off with something different, something equally as important, but uh, this one caught my attention, so I thought I'd mention it. Apparently, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has complied with a subpoena from the Justice Department's investigation into the events surrounding January 6th. And this makes him the highest-ranking Trump official known to have responded to a subpoena in the federal investigation. Now, what I need to remind you of is, now, he wasn't going to comply with the subpoena from the January 6th committee. Uh, It's a much different thing to get a subpoena from uh, Congress as opposed to getting a subpoena from the DOJ. You don't tell the DOJ, yeah, I'm not feeling it. I'm not coming in. You fucking come in. And Meadows has complied with the subpoena from the Department of Justice. Meadows turned over the same materials he provided to the House Select Committee investigating the U.S. Capitol attack. One source said, meeting the obligations of the Justice Department subpoena, which has not been previously reported. Now, here's the thing. We know the January 6th committee got a ton of documents from from uh, um, Mark Meadows and then said, no, I'm not going to show up for the questions. He could have been indicted, was not indicted. And, and maybe that has to do with what's going on with the Department of Justice now and getting him to comply. Now, last year, Meadows turned over thousands of text messages and emails to the House committee before he stopped cooperating. The text he handed over between Election Day 2020 and Joe Biden's inauguration, which CNN previously obtained, providing a window into his dealings at the White House, though he withheld hundreds of messages citing executive privilege. And as we know, executive privilege in this situation or any situation involving Donald Trump is no longer a thing. In addition to Trump's former chief of staff, one of Meadows' top deputies in the White House, Ben Williamson, also recently received a grand jury subpoena. Another source familiar with the matter tells CNN the subpoena was similar to what others in Trump's orbit received. It asked for testimony and records relating to January 6th and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Williams said previously cooperated with the January 6th committee. He declined to comment on that. Now, Meadows' compliance with the subpoena comes as the Justice Department has ramped up investigations related to January 6th, which now touches nearly every aspect of former President Donald Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election, including fraudulent electors plot, efforts to push push baseless election fraud claims and how money flowed to support to these various efforts. This election fraud thing is becoming pretty big. And it is pretty big when you think about it. It is a serious crime to try to defraud Congress and defraud the government and overturn an election. Whether you were one of these people that coordinated it or you one of these average Joe people that called themselves electors, but were fake electors. All of these people are starting to feel the heat. And I think a lot of these people thought they were just enthusiastic supporters. But now they're finding themselves with indictments and uh, trials and possible convictions. Federal investigators have issued at least 40 subpoenas to individuals with connections to Trump, including top officials from his fundraising and former campaign operation. As White House Chief of Staff Meadows was in the middle of Trump's efforts to overturn the election in the two months between Election Day and Biden's inauguration, Meadows communicated with numerous officials who tried to find election fraud and pushed various schemes to try to overturn the election, according to text messages that Meadows turned over to the House Select Committee. Meadows also shared baseless conspiracy theories with Justice Department leaders as Trump tried to enlist DOJ's help in his push to claim the election was stolen from him. Jeffrey Clark was the assistant uh, or deputy attorney general. He was the one, you know, who had the... uh, 
letter that he wanted to get out to all the swing state secret or secretaries of state. Same guy that Donald Trump was going to make AG after he fired Rosen, which didn't happen. Uh, Jeffrey Clark has announced just recently that he knows that he's under criminal investigation. Now, he's nonplussed by this. He can't imagine why that would be. He feels like he's immune. And that apparently is a disease that is going through the Republican Party. None of them feel like they should be held accountable or held under the rule of law. Well, they're going to find out differently now. After Meadows stopped cooperating with the House Committee, Congress referred him to the Justice Department for contempt of Congress. Of course, the DOJ declined to prosecute him for contempt earlier this year. It's not clear yet whether the Justice Department will seek more materials from Meadows as part of the uh, uh, ongoing criminal investigation, which could lead to a legal fight over executive privilege. Following last month's FBI search of Trump's Florida residence and resort, Meadows handed over texts and emails to the National Archives that he had not previously turned over from his time in the administration. Last year, Meadows spoke with Trump about the documents he brought to Mar-a-Lago that the National Archives wanted returned. Trump has been counseled to cut contact with Meadows, and some of Trump's attorneys believe Meadows could also be in investigators crosshairs and are concerned he could become a fact witness if he's pushed to cooperate. Still, Trump and Meadows have spoken a number of times, according to a source familiar with their relationship. Another source described their relationship as not the same as it once was while in the White House, but said they still have maintained a relationship even as Trump has complained about Meadows to others. We were wondering what was going on with Mark Meadows. We know he was the one closest to Donald Trump, but we hadn't heard anything for a long time since he turned over those documents to the January 6th committee and and refused to testify. We hadn't heard anything. So the presumption is that uh, he's uh, turning state witness, if you will. Now, I don't know if that's true, but he is cooperating with the DOJ. He really has no choice. He got by uh, getting away with contempt of Congress. But if you throw in contempt of the DOJ or don't comply to their subpoenas, you're definitely going to jail, motherfucker. Mark Meadows probably sees the writing on the wall. Donald Trump is known for throwing other people under the bus in order to save himself. Mark Meadows would probably be the prime candidate since he was the closest to Donald Trump. He was the chief of staff in the White House. It kind of reminds me of the old John Gotti, um, Sammy the Bull, Gravano thing. Now, Sammy the Bull was very loyal to John Gotti. He would have never turned state's evidence on John Gotti until he found out that John Gotti was trying to throw him under the bus. Then Sammy the Bull started singing like a fucking songbird. He was looking to save his life, and that's what he did. And, of course, John Gotti was the bigger fish, So they were more interested in John Gotti than Sammy the Bull. They were happy to take his testimony. Same kind of thing with Mark Meadows and Donald Trump. Mark Meadows could be the target. I mean, he was in the thick of it. He knew everything. He talked to everybody. But he also brought these conversations to Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump would likely say, well, I didn't know anything about it. That's all Mark Meadows. Go after him. I didn't know anything about this. I was just the guy in the White House, in the Oval Office. Well, Mark Meadows, for all his faults, probably isn't stupid enough to fall for that bullshit. So he saw the writing on the wall. He saw that he was at risk, and now he needs to save his life. And that's part of the reason why he's complying with the Department of Justice. Fact is, I have a feeling he's complying even more than we know at this point. I mean, Mark Meadows could go to jail. 
and if there's a way for him to stay out of jail, I'm sure he'll take every opportunity. And if that means throwing Donald Trump under the bus, well, I would think that's probably going to fucking happen. I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't throw Donald Trump out of the bus, under the bus? He loves loyalty, but he's never loyal to anybody. You think he's going to be loyal to Mark Meadows? No, he's already talking shit about Mark Meadows. Meadows is caught in kind of a tough spot. He wants to be loyal to Donald Trump, and God knows why, but they all do. But he knows that he's going to be taken down. He's going to take the rap. He's relatively younger than Donald Trump. He has a future. He has a family. And he has hopefully a career at some point doing something, probably not being chief of staff anymore. So he's thinking to himself, if this guy isn't loyal to me, then I might as well give him up. It probably goes against everything he could possibly want to do. But he's between a rock and a hard place. He has no fucking choice. He has to save himself. That's part of the reason why we probably haven't heard from him much. That's probably the reason the DOJ didn't indict him for not complying to the uh, uh, complying with the uh, select committee's subpoena. They thought we've got bigger plans for Mr. Meadows. So it's interesting to note that he gave up all this information to the DOJ. Now here's the interesting thing. They said he gave a lot of the same things he gave to the January 6th committee to the DOJ. Why would he have to do that? Well, we know the DOJ has been kind of um, tight with the evidence. What they want to do is they want to get through their investigation, put it all out there, and then the DOJ can have it all. They have shared some things with them so far, but apparently they hadn't shared the uh, text messages and documents from Mark Meadows with the DOJ as of yet. So the DOJ is perfectly capable of going to Meadows and say, look, man, you're in fucking trouble. We are going to take you down unless you give us the goods. So since the January 6th committee probably wasn't ready to turn over the documents they got from Meadows, then the DOJ went directly to Meadows and said, give us that shit. And he did. I will guarantee you there are a lot of people out there that are tied to Donald Trump that are scared shitless. And I would have to say that nobody is more frightened than Mark Meadows. He was standing next to Donald Trump through the whole process. He knew everything. He knew everybody. He knew what was said. He even participated in some conversations talking about conspiracy theories or supporting the overturning of the government. So Mark Meadows has his problems. He could very well see the inside of a cell. Whether he's trying to stay out of jail or just try to limit how much time he spends in jail, you can bet. He is... Uh, he is dog paddling here and hoping against hope he can get somebody to cut him a break. Honestly, I hope nobody cuts him a break. These people try to overthrow our country, undermine democracy. There is no going back from that. There is no excusing of that. And whether he's sorry now and whether he throws Donald Trump under the bus, the fact of the matter is he's a criminal and a criminal should be accountable regardless of what your position is. They always say it to us, nobody's above the law. And that would have to mean Mark Meadows, even though he was chief of staff for Donald Trump, he is not above the law. All right, we are going to take a break. And we will be right back. On every show, I tell you that if you have questions, comments, or complaints, just reach out to me at rationalboomer at gmail.com. Those emails come directly to me, and your input is crucial to this show. The show is called Rational Boomer Podcast, but that's not to suggest that I'm the Rational Boomer. I am not. I am simply a Rational Boomer. All of you are Rational Boomers. Anybody of a like mind is a Rational Boomer. Strength comes in numbers and not through an individual. You have perceptions and insights that may have never occurred to me. This isn't a show about me. This is a show about us and gaining a voice in this country. 
There's 70 million baby boomers in this country. Yeah, I know the younger folks would prefer to push us aside. Every generation has done that. But we are a formidable force if we can get together and speak in one voice. This is why I encourage you to let your friends and family know about the Rational Boomer podcast, not to satisfy my ego, but to give us more power, a stronger voice to help right this ship we call the United States of America. Lastly, I'm offering the opportunity for my listeners to be on the show. Now, it could be two minutes, it could be a half hour, it could be the whole fucking show. I'd much rather have you on the show than somebody pimping a podcast or a book. I want to hear what you think. I want to know what you know. The Rational Boomer Podcast is all about us. All right, before we get to the next story, and this is a big one, so you'll want to stick with me for this, I wanted to address something that Brian mentioned in his email at the top of the show. He said when he was listening to the podcast with Brian Wallenberg, the Trumplefuck, it didn't sound like I'd done any editing, you know, whether it be to try to make him look bad or me look good. Here's what you need to know about the Rational Boomer podcast. I never, ever, ever edit it. Never. Well, that's not true. I mean, if I'm doing the show and I cough, you'll hear me take a drink of water from time to time. That's so I can avoid cutting out a cough. I mean, Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm 62 years old. I'm going to fucking cough from time to time. That's the only time I edit the Rational Boomer podcast to cut things like that out of there. Um, when you hear me talking doing the podcast, it's me starting from zero, going to the end, and nothing is cut, nothing is edited. I don't try to make myself look better or worse or anything like that or anybody else I'm talking to. The reason I don't do that is because, one, I'm too fucking lazy to do that. Uh, two, I'm cocky enough to think I don't have to do that. And three, podcasts are different than radio shows. It's more intimate, more real, less production. The more production you put into a podcast, it sounds like a radio show. And then if you want to hear a radio show, then turn on the fucking radio. You don't pull up a podcast. So I don't edit anything. What you hear when I'm talking to people on the show, it's a real conversation as it was recorded. No difference. It's like you were sitting in and eavesdropping on the conversation. That's how I want it. That's how I think it should be. And when it comes to me doing the show like I am here and it's just me, there's no reason to edit it. I know what I'm going to say. And uh, if I say it wrong or I mess up or I lisp or do something, who cares? You get the gist of what's going on, and that's the best way I can keep the podcast authentic. I mean, that's been my goal all along from doing the TikToks um, to doing the podcast. This this was an experiment, essentially. Can some old guy <laughs> doesn't do anything special just talk and still get attention? And fortunately, I have gotten some attention, and I'm appreciative of that. The goal is to, do people really listen to the content, and do people really care about the content? Well, I can't speak for everybody else, but everybody that follows this podcast and the TikTok seems to care. And I appreciate that. We've established that. We've proved that. So, Brian, there was no editing. I didn't do anything to try to make Brian look bad. I didn't have to do that. I knew I wouldn't have to do that. Um, and anything I do in the future, you can be assured there is no editing. I'm not trying to fancy it up or make me look better. Because if I look bad, what the hell? What in the hell? The other thing I would say to Brian, too, real quickly Brian, the information you're talking about with Medicare and Medicare for All, I think there would be a lot of value in people hearing that. And we'll do a podcast and we'll see how people react to it. But if I'm you, Brian, I would maybe think of doing TikToks, you know, give tips, 60-second, three-minute tips, whatever it is. Just do TikToks. I think you'd get a lot of followers. I think you'd get a lot of interest. And I think you'd do a great service. Something to think about, Brian. Anyway, let's get down to another story that is absolutely crucial. And it's kind of off the beaten path for us because it's not political. It is political, but it's not. 
Let me give you an example. Car buyers might not get the vehicle they want on time. Commuter rail lines could see service disrupted and shipments from everything from oil to livestock feed could be snarled. See, I could have edited that, but I'm not going to fucking edit it. Those are just a few of the wide-ranging impacts a walkout by U.S. rail workers would have on the country's industries and economy. You've heard about this, this uh, railroad strike that's supposed to occur on Friday, and everybody is freaking out about it. And I mean everybody in the railroad industry, but also in government, in retail, in all these things. Railroads aren't traveled by passengers as much as they once were, but everything moves around this country, and a lot of it is moved by trains. And if those trains stop, well, then so does the supply chain. And here we are back in that supply chain problem, and that will add to inflation. A strike could happen if the railroads and unions can't settle their differences before an early Friday walkout deadline. Nearly all new vehicles that travel more than a couple of hundred miles from the factory to their destination are shipped by rail because it's more efficient, said Michael Robinette, an executive director for S&P Global Mobility. So it's almost a certainty that new vehicles coming to the U.S. from Mexico or other countries will be delayed. It's not like there's extra truck capacity to take all the vehicles that railroads can't carry, Robinette said. Automakers might be hampered in building vehicles, too, because some larger parts and raw materials are transported by rail. But Robinette said automakers will go to great lengths to get the parts to keep their factories running as much as possible. Mike Austin, a senior mobility analyst for Guidehouse Research, said the strike could make new vehicles even more scarce, driving prices up beyond current record levels that could raise inflation. As other goods aren't moving through the rails, Carlos Tavares, CEO of Stellantis, said Wednesday at the the Detroit Auto Show that his company will wind up apologizing to customers because their orders may not arrive in time. Metro Commuter Rail Service, which operates in Chicago, said Wednesday that it would suspend operations on four of its 11 lines on Friday if a work stoppage occurs. Some disruptions on those lines would begin after rush hour Thursday night. Now, in Minnesota, right here in my own home state, the operators of a commuter rail line that carries workers along a densely populated corridor from Minneapolis to northwestern suburbs and towns warned that service could be suspended as early as Friday. Well, that will be an inconvenience for those folks, but as a former traffic reporter, I can tell you that will fuck up the freeways and slow traffic down just about everywhere. In the Puget Sound region of Washington State, any strike would cancel the rail service until employees return to work, said David Jackson, Jackson, a spokesman for the regional transit agency Sound Transit. Some Caltrain riders in the San Francisco Bay Area could be impacted by a rail strike. The Maryland Transit Administration warned this week that a strike would mean the immediate suspension of service on two of its three Mark Computer rail lines. Amtrak, meanwhile, said that starting Thursday, all its long-distance trains are canceled to avoid possible passenger disruptions while en route. So you see, it's like that old story, shit rolls downhill. If the trains stop, it affects so many things and can affect our economy significantly. Just as inflation is starting to get in control and the supply chain is starting to get better, it can all be thrown to shit if something like this happens. This is absolutely crucial. And it takes it a step further as far as how crucial it is, because not only does it cause all kinds of disruptions and causes problems with the economy, you can see the stock market will take a hit if this happens, but this is also something that's not going to be good for the Democrats. 
We know inflation and supply chain, that's going to fall at the feet of the Democrats and could hurt them in the midterms. So you can see how this is very important. The next couple of days, tomorrow, we'll know if there is a strike. Now, that's not to say the government isn't working on a plan to get this done. But will they? A strike could have a significant impact on the energy industry, the energy industry, and could hurt consumers who would likely end up paying more for gasoline. It's going down now, but it could go back up. Electricity and even natural gas, and we're going into winter. Refineries might have to halt production if they can't get the deliveries they need or if they don't have access to rail to ship gasoline. And it goes back to the old supply and demand. If there's low supply and a lot of demand, and there will be, then what happens? The prices go up. No one wants to risk leaving flammable chemicals stranded on railroad tracks if a strike occurs. Another problem. That's why railroads begin curtailing shipments of hazardous materials on Monday to protect that dangerous cargo. So even if they don't go on strike, a lot of this material and, and, and fuel has already been delayed. Roughly 300,000 barrels of crude oil moved by rail each day, which could supply two mid-sized refineries, according to AFPM, and about 5 million barrels of propane representing a third of the U.S. consumption are moved by rail monthly, the group said. Now here's the thing. We've heard about these, this rail strike, but I don't know that most of us understand how serious this could be if it actually occurs. Roughly 70% of all ethanol produced in the U.S. is shipped by rail, and ethanol accounts for about a tenth of U.S. gasoline volume, according to S&P Global Commodity Insight. Nearly 75% of the coal moved to electric utilities in the first half of 2022 was moved by rail. Livestock producers could see problems almost immediately if shipments of feed abruptly ended, according to the National Grain and Feed Association. Meat and poultry groups noted that reliance on rail for shipments of feed and called for a quick resolution of the rail dispute. Every week, the nation's chicken industry receives about 27 million bushels of corn and 11 million bushels of soybean meal to feed the chicken, said Tom Super, senior vice president of the National Chicken Council. How would you like that job? I'm senior VP of the National Chicken Council. Almost sounds like a joke. I'm not trying to make light of it. It's just my weird mind. Experts say retailers have been shipping goods early in the season in recent months as a way to protect themselves from potential disruptions. But this buffer will only slightly minimize the impact from a railroad strike, which is brewing during the critical holiday shipping season, said Jesse Dankart. We're not in the holiday shopping season, but of course, this time of year, they get prepared for that shopping season and it is a critical holiday shipping season. This is not a good time for this to happen. Dankart noted that retailers noticing a slowdown in shipments are now making contingency plans like turning to trucks to pick up some of the slack and making plans to use some of the excess inventory that it has in its distribution centers. But, of course, we know there's a shortage of truckers as well. So that's not going to help things very much. As we've seen in the past two and a half years, if there is a breakdown anywhere along the supply chain, one link falters, you see that ripple effect pretty quickly, and those effects just spread from there. So this is a serious thing. And the question is, what do these rail workers want? I mean, I'm assuming they want more money, but what it sounds like is that they want time off. They're working these people to the bone. They don't get paid time off or sickness or that sort of thing. They just want to be able to have some time in their work week to spend with their families. I don't think that's a lot to fucking ask for. 
And these railway companies want to work them to the bone as if they are slaves, give them one day a week off, maybe, or no days a week off. I've seen people working 70, 80 hours working in the rail industry. So when do you have time to have dinner with your family or spend time with your family? It doesn't sound like to me that the rail workers are asking for anything crazy. And it's more about getting some time of their own back as opposed to getting more money. I don't think that's a lot to ask. I'm finding it hard to imagine why the railroad industry is having trouble providing that kind of thing to their people. You would think they'd want them to be healthy and happy. I mean, these guys can't even get time off if they get sick. They can't get paid time off for sickness. They can't even get unpaid time off for sickness. That's ridiculous in this day and age. I know there's a shortage of employees, but not the employees' problems. That is the problems of the administrations in the railroad companies. I guess the rail people are just looking to be treated like human beings and being allowed to live their lives. I don't think that's a lot to ask. So the government is working on this. They don't want to see the economy go to shit if this rail strike happens on Friday. Or do they? See, that's the question. There's some butting of heads as to what should be done in Congress. Now, why would they butt heads over something like that? Well, we know the Republicans would love to see the economy go to shit because it would make the Democrats look bad. They want to gain something. They want to uh, gain an edge. So maybe they're likely to sacrifice the rail workers in order for their own benefit. Sounds crazy, but you and I both know that they're fully capable of something like that. I'm just hoping against hope that they come up with some answer and get this done. Make it more palatable for the rail workers and keep things flowing. But as I said, people are anticipating this, so they're slowing things down. So this will have an impact on us after the fact. Even if they don't go on strike, it'll have a small ripple effect. If they do go on strike, this could spell huge problems for this country the economy, and even the Democrats at this point. All right, we talked about our buddy Mike Lindell yesterday. My Pillow CEO Mike Lindell revealed on Tuesday that the FBI agents had seized his phone while he was at Hardy's restaurant. And now the fast food franchise is using it to gen up some easy publicity. <laughs> I love this. Now, Hardee's is not nearly as popular as McDonald's or as Burger King or Wendy's or even Culver's. They've been kind of a non-entity as late. Now, there was a time I always went to Hardee's. They had this uh, Frisco burger. It was a fucking awesome. But the last time I went to a Hardee's, which was three or four years ago, whatever I got was just shit. I don't know why. That particular Hardee's has closed down, uh, so I maybe need to give them an extra chance. But they are, they are jumping all over this notoriety with Mike Lindell being braced by the FBI and having his phone taken away while in the, in the uh, drive-through lane <laughs> at a Hardee's in Mankato, Minnesota, which oddly enough is where Mike Lindell was born. It's his hometown. Apparently, he was hunting down in Iowa. He was coming back, got a little hungry, said, man, one of those thick burgers sounds good. He gets in the drive-thru. Next thing you know, he's got FBI agents fucking everywhere. On Wednesday morning, the official Hardy's Twitter account wrote that, <laughs> I love this, now that, we, now that you know we exist, you should really try our pillowy biscuits. <laughs> the use of the word pillowy is a clear reference to Lindell, who, before becoming America's most infamous 2020 election conspiracy theorist, was best known for being a wealthy pillow monger. <laughs> Some of Hardy's followers replied with memes, mocking Lindell for 
being in potential legal jeopardy. Check out you can check out some of those reactions on Twitter. But there were a couple. Of, there was one other thing that I saw that uh, at least one Hardee's did. <laughs> oh, people are going to have fun with this. But there's the first one that Hardee's tweeted out. Now that you know we exist, you should try our pillowy biscuits. And then somebody took a picture. I don't know if this was created or photoshopped or if it was real. But on a sign at a Hardee's, and I don't know where this is, it said, now serving the pillow guy up to the FBI. (laughs) Oh, I love how they're making Mike Lindell a joke because he is, in fact, a fucking joke. And it's hard for me to say because he's one of our own. He's from Minnesota. He's had some success, but Jesus Christ, some of the shit that comes out of his mouth has got to be embarrassing to his family, his employees, and certainly to all Minnesotans. And he had such a good thing going. He had these shitty pillows. I even had one one time. The one good thing about the pillow, it never got flat. That was the best part of it. As far as comfort, yeah, not so much. I found better pillows that serve me better. Anyway, the pillow guy had his phone taken away. And I bet there are a lot of people that interact with the pillow guy day to day that are a little nervous. Because as Mike Lindell said, everything he does for his business, everything is on that phone. So I'm sure the FBI will have a heyday going through Mike Lindell's phone. Some might say, well, he probably just just uh, purged everything his phone from his phone. <laughs> you really think that? You know Mike Lindell. I mean, allegedly the FBI told him, don't tell anybody we did this. So what does Mike Lindell do? The moment he gets away from them, he's, he tells everybody what they did. Now, some people are thinking this has to do with the January 6th committee situation, and it may, partially or wholly, but a lot of people are um, are thinking it's tied to this Tina woman in Colorado who's under indictment, and uh, she was involved in election fraud there with the Republican Party in Colorado. We don't know what it's all about as yet. All we can do is wait and see, but suffice to say... Uh, He is in trouble on several levels, several fucking levels. Mike Lindell is not going to survive this. At best, his company will be bankrupted. At worst, his company will be bankrupted and he will spend time in jail. All right, lawmakers on the House panel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol offered differing accounts Wednesday of a recent evidence that they have received from the Secret Service, but agreed they are making progress on its investigation into agency actions in the days leading up to the attack. Comments follow demands from the committee that the agency turn over its communications for January 5th and January 6th after being notified the Secret Service lost the messages as it migrated to a new mobile management software. The Secret Service turned in a large batch of documents to the committee in July. But Zolofgren said there is now a very steady flow of data coming into the committee. This will be very very telling. I mean, the fact is, we know all the problems with the uh, Secret Service. We know that we probably can't trust the Secret Service. They were trying to get information and data from them, and they refused to give it. Well, now apparently they feel enough pressure where the shit is flowing. And Donald Trump has to be shitting his pants to know that all the activity, all the communications with the Secret Service is now being turned over to the January 6th committee. But more importantly than that, we know that after the January 6th committee is done with it, then it's going to the DOJ. And that's where the indictments come from. New information has come in, and some of it is, you know, very pertinent. Some of it is less relevant, but it's been a large volume of information, Lofgren said during an appearance on MSNBC. 
Panel, uh, panel Chairman Bernie Thompson suggested that the committee has also been able to obtain additional messages from the agency. Just a single text message was turned over by the Secret Service amid thousands of documents in response to the committee's request, a plea from the Capitol Police officer Steve Sund asking for help. Thompson twice answered yes when asked if the files recently turned over included agency text messages from January 5th and 6th. Now remember, they said they lost those. But as I've told you before, the FBI can find ways to get them, but apparently the Secret Service found a way too. They tried to blow off the FBI, and when they found out that wasn't going to work, somehow, someway, they found these text messages. He also said he was not aware of whether they had been reconstructed. They were presented to us. I'm not, I don't know the origin. What he's saying about reconstructed is, if in fact they purged all this stuff, all this data, they somehow have to recompile it. And he doesn't know if that's what they did. Or they were just lying and had them all the time, which is more likely. We've asked for any and all messages, so the tranches we've received have been significant, he added. It's a combination of a number of text messages, radio traffic, that kind of thing. Just thousands of exhibits. This is just from the Secret Service. Lofgren would not offer details on the format of the new information that has proven useful to the committee. I didn't say what specific types of information, and I'm really not at liberty to do that under the committee rules. You know, there's text, there's emails, there's radio traffic, there's all kinds of information. Uh, Even Microsoft Teams meeting. That's a software you can get on your phone where you can interact with people on your business team. So we're going through everything that's been provided. More is coming in. As I say, some is not relevant, and some of it is. It's a huge slog to go through, but we are going to go through it, and the members of the committee themselves have been involved in this, Lofgren said. The indication that the committee is making uh, progress in its investigation as it relates to the Secret Service comes as the panel members have said they have yet to secure testimony from Tony Orinato, who retired from the Secret Service this summer following testimony that he told White House staff that former President Trump lunged at his security detail after being told he could not join his supporters at the Capitol. While the Secret Service said Orinato and any other staff would be made available to the committee, he has yet to testify. He has his own lawyer, and obviously the constraints of him being in the Secret Service is different than him being a private citizen. It was a weird circumstance, if you remember. Um, and the circumstance was this. He worked for the Secret Service. Then Donald Trump came in, found him to be a friend to... Uh, Trump's own ideology. So he made them kind of made him kind of a liaison. He made him a deputy chief of staff, put him in the White House, and then he kind of was a liaison with the Secret Service. He was still a Secret Service guy. The Secret Service was still paying him, but he was working as Donald Trump's shill. But that's just how Donald Trump fucking does things. That's how he does things. And so you know, we 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 just have to wait and see what comes out of this. It might be tougher to get him to talk, but we'll see. We, of course, talked about uh, um, Lindsey Graham all of a sudden coming out of nowhere with this plan, this national ban on abortion after 15 weeks. And what's weird about it was is that You know, the Republicans always said, we want the states to decide this. And somebody said, well, you just want to make it a national ban, too. And they said, no, 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 of course not. Lindsey Graham, in fact, even said that. So now this overturning of Roe v. Wade has turned out to be just a non-starter for Republicans with the upcoming midterms. It's hurt them immeasurably. So the last thing they need is somebody like Lindsey Graham stepping up and said, yeah, we're going to outlaw abortion federally. 
But that's what he did. Now, there are some people sticking with him, people like Marquio Rubio. He's agreeing with Lindsey Graham. Just shows you how stupid fucking Marco Rubio is. Um, but probably half of the people, Republicans, are saying, yeah, not so much. I don't think we're going to do that. Now, that's not to say they don't agree with them. They're just saying this because they know it's going to fuck them over completely in the midterms. They might get through the midterms, and if they get the majority, they'll say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, Lindsay. Let's do that. So there will be people who say, yeah, I'm all for that. I stand with Lindsay. And then there will be other people in the Republican Party that says, no, we have no interest in that. It's supposed to go back to the states. Don't believe that. Don't think they're good guys. I mean, these are the same people that overturned Roe v. Wade on a state level. So to think that they might not might not be truthful when it comes to not wanting to make it a federal ban after the elections, that's fucking silly. That's not going to happen. All right, I just wanted to do one last story, kind of a interesting, weird, and a positive story. Something we don't hear too often. You know, most of us have trouble with big business and wealthy people. And how they just take and they take and they take and they never give back. Well, there is a unicorn amongst billionaires. Patagonia founder Yvonne Chouinard is giving away the multi-billion dollar outdoor apparel company the climber turned businessman announced on Wednesday. He's given the whole fucking company away. Chenard and his family are transferring ownership of Patagonia to a trust and nonprofit in an effort to maintain the company's environmentalist values and increase its contributions toward fighting climate change. Chenard said, Earth is now our only shareholder. As part of the shift, Chenard committed Patagonia to giving away all its excess profits to efforts to fight the environmental crisis. This is interesting. Good guy. He's doing the right thing. The company's excess profits will go to Hold Fast Collective, an environmental nonprofit organization that is also receiving the entirety of Patagonia's non-voting shares about 98% of the company. The remaining 2% of the company, the voting shares, will go to the Patagonia Proposed Trust, the trust which was created to protect and maintain Patagonia's values, will have final say on a key decision. Chenard noted that they chose not to sell Patagonia or take the company public for fear that its values would be compromised. Wow. Imagine that. A billionaire and a big-time company with some integrity. Who knew? Instead of going public, you could say we're going purpose, Chenard said. Instead of extracting value from nature and transforming it into wealth for investors, we will use the wealth Patagonia creates to protect the source of all wealth. Despite giving away ownership, Chenard said he and his family will continue to guide the Patagonia Pur uh, purpose Trust and Hold Fast Collective and sit on the board of directors. This is really interesting. Why would somebody do that? Well, maybe he truly cares. You almost have to believe that because he's given away the whole thing. He's giving billions of dollars away. Why is he doing that? The other good thing that he might be accomplishing here is that by making this move, that's going to give Patagonia even more exposure and presumably more business, meaning more profit. Now, you might be cynical about that, but remember, he gave the whole company away. All the money is going to help with climate change. So that's a good thing. So for once, we have a billionaire, a big business that decided against money and to help out this country and the entire earth, for that matter. So unless we find out something 
nefarious or weird that went on, and I don't know how that could be. I don't see it. Uh, you got to give these people a hand. you got to give them credit for doing what's right, sacrificing billions of dollars for the benefit of the earth. Never bought a Patagonia piece of apparel, a hat, or anything like that. It always seemed kind of, I don't know, you always, when, <laughs> and excuse me if you wear Patagonia stuff. My exposure to people wearing Patagonia um, is limited to the areas I've been. So I don't know everybody that wore or wears Patagonia stuff. But a lot of the people that wear Patagonia stuff are usually stuffy or douchebags or jerks. So that's why I would never wear it. Now I might have to change that. If it's all for the greater good and all for helping climate change, I'm on board. I'll wear Patagonia, assuming I can afford this shit. That shit's expensive. I don't know if you've ever looked at it. Anyway, that's the good news as we wrap things up for yet another Rational Boomer podcast. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to sit down and listen. I hope you have a great day, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.